collectively, one of the things that we're trying to do quite a bit of heavy lifting on is really get that common taxonomy right. The pressures that governments are facing are you know, astronomical. It's not just climate change. If we deploy enough effort, enough uh, resources to it, we can bring those emissions uh, down. Hello. What will be the impact of climate change for investors? How can sustainability be embedded into portfolios? And what role should asset allocators play in supporting sustainable innovation? These are just some of the big questions Fidelity International's first ever Sustainable World Summit sought to address. In this special end-of-year podcast, we're going to take a look back over the event, which brought together speakers from around the globe to discuss what a sustainable future might hold. I'm Carsten Röhmheld, filling in for Richard Edgar, and this is Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm glad to say I'm joined today by Fidelity's Head of Corporate Sustainability and Enterprise Relationships, Victoria Kelly. Hi, Victoria. Thank you for joining me. Hi, Carsten. Thank you so much for having me. In the build-up to the COP26 summit in Glasgow in November, there was a big focus on sustainability and the role we can all play in helping the world to meet its climate targets. A key theme of Fidelity's Sustainable World Summit was what investors can do. Victoria, what stood out for you? If I think about what stood out, it's really that sustainability is pervasive to everything across our industry. You know, I think as some of the speakers said, it's no longer a minority sport. This is now something that we're all really focused on and really engaged around and actually see not only it as something which is interesting, but also something that can lead to real economic returns for ourselves and for our customers, most importantly. The last thing, which I think was really interesting, is that it's very clear that we're all in this together. There needs to be collaboration and cooperation from every part of the supply chain, including governments, companies, as well as individuals, in order to achieve the goals that we all want to obtain. To take one of the parties that you've just mentioned, uh, the companies, one of the fascinating interviews we heard was with BHP, one of the world's largest mining companies. Chief Executive Mike Henry shared some on-the-ground insights about how sustainability is changing the way business leaders leaders manage their companies. Let's hear a bit of that interview now. Here's Mr. Henry on how an organization like BHP hopes to have an impact not just on its operational emissions, but on the emissions of its entire value chain. Our customers, steel mills, their operational emissions are our scope, scope three emissions. There's some serious investment required on their part and you know, new technologies required to achieve net zero for them. Now, just because we don't control those decisions doesn't mean that we can ignore that part of the value chain because it is very a very big part of the emissions associated with BHP products. But we must recognize that in terms of scope three, we have to collaborate with others and that these problems will only be solved by various parties in the value chain coming together um, and working together to advance new technologies um, and potentially some, some investment decisions. How is that translated into action for us? We've entered into partnerships with a number of the world's leading steelmakers. So steelmakers who make up 12, somewhere between 12 and 15% of global steel production, where we're contributing know-how and uh, some uh, uh, financial support towards their efforts towards decarbonization. There's other parts of our scope three, like maritime transport of BHP's products or the emissions associated with the goods and services provided to BHP, um, where we think we can exert 
greater influence because we're a buyer of, of, of ocean freight. We're a buyer of, of goods and services. And there, in those cases, we've said we will be net zero by 2050. Um, and we've put in place medium-term uh, uh, targets as, as well. But it all comes back to the level of influence that we believe we're able to exert over different parts in the value chain, one, and two, levels of technology readiness to enable decarbonization. That was PHP's Mike Henry speaking. You can hear the interview in full on the Rich Pickings channel. Victoria, how realistic is this attempt to make miners responsible for the emission of their entire value chain? I think it's a really difficult question, but I also think it's a really interesting challenge. Um, you know, listening to, to Mr. Henry's interview, what's really clear is that, you know, I would call this a best in class, very ambitious plan. You know, they're very aware of what they can control and aware of what they can't control. But what they're trying to do is think about what is the opportunity and what does that mean for them and for their communities more broadly? You know, what I think that they've been very clear about is let's focus on first where we can control it. So as he mentioned, scope one and scope two being straightforward, be there they can fully control what they're doing and they're just going to move forward. On those scope threes, they're starting with where they are the customer, where they can demand change and where they can control that and making it easier actually for those further up the supply chain to support them in the transition um, and for their business objectives. One of the things which he did mention, I think, later on in his interview is around how they also engage with the communities. So it's not just about supporting transition for transition's sake, but also ensuring that the communities come along with them and that they don't leave damage in their wake. And so, you know, as I said, I think it really is a very ambitious plan, but I think that's how we're going to affect change. It's thinking about where is the path of least resistance and also taking a very practical approach to what one can control and where what one can influence, which is different than control, which seems very much what BHP is focused on at this moment in time. There was another very interesting aspect of it, and I, and I you know, found that he was quite bullish on BHP's outlook. He said, for the world to decarbonize, it's going to lead a lot more metal, going on to say that something like two times as much copper in the next 30 years as to what was required over the past 30 if we want to hit the 1.5 degree target, and four times as much nickel. Are investors underestimating the part that these legacy industries will play in the transition economy? Look, I think, Karsten, that's exactly the point. And I think that's what actually forces the change, is moving this from just a discussion about challenge and this being difficult to there actually being real opportunities. So, and I think this is something when we think about forward-looking opportunities, forward-looking ESG ratings, it's where is there going to be a change? How can this you know, have a positive impact on financial returns and how we can support that transition for solutions? This is true not only for companies, but also for countries as well. And I'm sure we'll come to this later. But again, I think it is that transition from challenge to opportunity, which Mr. Henry lays out so well, where actually not only, you know, we can look to the past of BHP, some of the challenges um, you know, or, you know, issues that they've had perhaps from a climate perspective, but actually taking this opportunity to move it towards this future business opportunity makes it much easier to, to require and, and facilitate that transition. So the picture is not as black and white as it would uh, seem to be for some people. It's uh, uh, many shades of grey in the meantime, I guess. Another one of the summit's guests was former governor of the banks of Canada and England and current UN special envoy for climate and finance, Mark Carney. Mr. Carney spoke about the importance of understanding the hard numbers of the energy transition. Victoria, what should investors be wary of when valuing companies in the face of decarbonization? I think there, there are two parts to it. One is really thinking about quantitative versus qualitative data points. 
Both are very important in terms of making decisions and making investment decisions and understanding the impact and the, you know, the success around decarbonization. But it's being really clear what is quantitative versus what is an interpretation and how you model that into your process. You know, when we look to the future, where we're going to be able to, I think, really, again, move from this challenge to opportunity is when we have more data and when we can actually embed decision making with hard facts and hard data plans that are going to allow us to understand what is the cost of decarbonization and actually more importantly what is the cost of not decarbonizing and I think again this is really something that came out to me across the whole summit is it's the cost of not doing this which is actually hard to articulate maybe hard to measure but the more we're able to pull those hard data points together it will make that transition a clearer obvious path of least resistance versus perhaps where we are today or where we were a couple of years ago. I guess data points are one thing, but data quality is another. And so I think it's quite critical when it comes to assessing the full impact of doing sustainable business. What can you, what can it tell us about data quality? I think it's all over the map to be to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, one of the things I know we as an organization do is is we try to triangulate. So we don't just use one source; we use multiple sources, and we also use our own forensic in, um, sort of data mining ourselves, which again is really important to to getting comfort around those data points if you're going to use them to make future investment decisions. You know, I think one of the things that Mr. Carney spoke to in his interview, which is really exciting, is the introduction of international standards around ESG reporting and. And whilst we're not there yet, that was one of the fantastic things that came out of COP26 is the emergence of a global standard. Um, you know, and I know different people will talk about this in different ways, but the closer we can get to those standards and the closer we can get to consistent data and reporting requirements across various jurisdictions, the more comfort we'll have in making stronger investment decisions um, and stronger advocacy points in the future. And politics is a very important point here. We had another prominent speaker, Jose Manuel Barroso, the former president of the European Commission in that summit. He spoke about the need for regulation to create the right incentives for the energy transition. And he said this could cost in the region of 60 trillion dollars over the next two decades. So, Victoria, what do you see the role of regulation being and, and what should investors also consider when it comes to the political aspects of this? There are a couple of different parts around regulation, which I think are really important. The first one, which perhaps Mr. Barroso didn't speak too much to, but I think is really important, is around that standardization of framework. Um, and if we can have as close to consistent frameworks across various jurisdictions and regulation working hand in hand with each other across those jurisdictions, this will make the path much easier and it will make us be able to transition and understand the transition more quickly. But to speaking specifically about Mr. Barroso's interview and what he touched on is where is regulation? Is it positive? Is it negative? You know, I think there are, there are questions of both there. You know, where it becomes is almost the last resort. One of the challenges which he pointed to is the time frame and how challenging it is to think about regulation on a multi-jurisdiction or a multinational level. When we think about how long it takes for the cooperation across a G7 or G20 or even broader than that, the outcomes are fantastic, but the time is really, really long. And you know, there is a certain level of urgency, which is, I think, where corporates can come in, where national re regulation can come in, but also where individuals can come in and to try to bridge that gap. You know, regulation will ultimately be 
a final driver of us and I, you know, what I believe to be the right direction, but we can't wait for regulation to act. We really need to be moving more quickly and use regulation as almost a last resort to, to sort of push those final opportunities over the line. So do you think we will need a positive and negative incentive, so to speak, to get that global understanding going? I do, but I think, you know, there is, there's an interesting balance and probably those negative, um, that sort of stick mentality moves into an opportunity over time. And I know I keep saying, this move from challenge to opportunity, but I think it's exactly that. And that's really how I think you pivot the mindset. And it's again, it's what's the risk of not doing this? And you know, where we really need to focus on is the just transition. And so it will be different for each economy. And I think that's really where regulation can be very helpful in supporting those economies where perhaps they're not able to do this on their own, where they do need multinational support to ensure that their communities and their people are taken along and not left behind because they're forced to transition at a pace that they can't actually afford to do it at. And that's a really good point. So do you think that after COP26, we're now starting to see more alignment in how ESG issues are seen around the world? I think we're headed in the right direction. You know, I think one of the things that, you know, we need to talk about is, is the pace is going to be different across various jurisdictions. It's going to take significantly longer for some countries versus others. And so asking each country to subscribe to and sign up to perhaps the exact same timeline isn't necessarily practical. Um, I think one of the interviews really talked about, um, you know, India's ambition is is actually very ambitious in terms of their timelines, even though it doesn't fit with the 2050 target. And so I think there's an opportunity for all all countries and all people to really be aware of, of this various timeline and actually figure out over time how this can accelerate. And again, one of the other opportunities or things that came out of COP26, which is fantastic, is that each country now will come back on an annual basis and reassess their targets and reassess their timelines. Historically, it was every five years. And with this change to every one year, the conversation isn't closed. And I think that's really a great opportunity for us to accelerate the change as well. As you said before, I mean, there's a difference probably in, in speed with regards to emerging markets versus developed markets in this process. Do you think the understanding for developed markets is enough that we have to help emerging markets cross the line to help them with technology innovation, things like that, um, to actually make the change happen? And do you think that mindset has already shifted in the, in the necessary way? I think what's interesting, if you look at the individuals who are very involved in the conversation, yes, that mindset has very much shifted. My view perhaps is a little bit little bit more cynical in that there is a broader population and, and a broader ethos that does need to continue to pivot. Um, this isn't about pointing fingers, but ultimately in time, we really want to be thinking about bringing the whole globe along because it doesn't work if just developed economies or the, nor the northern half of the earth moves ahead and actually leaves everybody else behind. That's just not going to be sufficient. That's a great segue into the next chapter, because during the summit, I spoke to Fidelity's chief executive, Anne Richards, about how asset managers should be thinking about their role in creating a more sustainable future. Here is what she had to say. I think collectively, one of the things that we're trying to do quite a bit of heavy lifting on is really get that common taxonomy right. I think that's really, really important. I think thinking how we as investors can encourage and support green tech innovation, I, I really believe that will be a big part um, of, of the journey that we're on to solve this problem. Thinking about not just the end point, as I mentioned, but thinking about how we handle the transition, really, really important. And, but the final thing, and I think this is the best framing of the whole carbon debate that I've, I've, I've ever heard, 
which is remember that the challenge is not that there is more carbon in the world than there used to be. There's exactly the same amount of carbon that there's always been. It's just we've put it in the wrong place. And what we need to do is get it back where it belongs, whether that's under the sea or in forests or under the earth. So we should think about that as the problem. It's, we're trying to move the carbon around and get it from where we don't want it to be to where we want it to be. And what can we do to encourage that? Anne Richards, Fidelity's chief executive speaking there. Victoria, Anne spoke about support of sustainable innovation. You, in fact, hosted a panel during the summit on that very subject. So what are the opportunities and challenges for investors in this space? I think one of the biggest challenges is actually being open to change and open to things that are very different and really understanding that technology that may not have been tried and tested for the last five, 10, 20 years can actually have a real positive impact and something that we should really be embracing in, in the short to medium term. I do think as investors, though, we sit in a really privileged position where we can actually encourage and support companies to invest in different technologies to try things. And, you know, with us as a long term investor, we really can support that transition, not only, you know, from a carbon perspective and a climate perspective, but also from from that technology perspective. We're not going to get everything right, but actually how do we support these companies when they make leaps into new spaces and are able to actually support, you know, new technologies that we didn't think mattered. And I think one of the really interesting things that we touched on in the panel was we need to do things differently. We really need to shake it up and we need to not just say we're going to make small tweaks around the edges and that's actually going to cause ripples down the line. It's actually, you know, ripping up the rule book in certain ways and really changing our process and changing how we engage with corporates, how we engage with our investee companies to accelerate the change. It sounds very exciting, Victoria. So what are we actually doing? Well, I think one of the really interesting things that we've started to do through our global asset allocation team is actually change our capital market assessments. We are actually now embedding climate, climate change, as well as decarbonization into our assessments and how we think about allocating assets going forward. It's a real change. It's still very new and, and it's going to take time and it's going to need lots more data and, and lots more higher quality data. But it's a huge step in the right direction, which really allows us to engage differently with our investee companies companies and talk about what are the changes that they need to do in order to allow us to understand where they're going and, and if this becomes a good investment for us. So what impact do these revised capital market assumptions have? I think one of the biggest changes is actually it's a switch from just thinking about financial returns to this wonderful phrase around double materiality. So we now are looking at things with two lenses. So not only from this financial side, but also from the ESG side and really thinking about what is that long term investment? And I think this is going to be one of those things that becomes key and foundational to our investment process going forward. Moving away now from the summit slightly, sustainability has been a dominating theme for the investment industry throughout the year. And I recently asked Fidelity's chief investment officer, Andrew McCaffrey, if investors can balance the opportunities offered by this trend. As we look to the future, that. The opportunity is massive investment, massive uh, repositioning to really capture the opportunity to develop the true green economies and everything that can be very positive with that um, through time. But it will be bumpy. Part of that is policy setting. You know, we've had a number of great pledges made from COP26, but the degree to which they can be implemented and the speed at which they're implemented clearly has a very mixed profile when you look country to country. 
There's also, again, the challenges I mentioned as we look to the US, that the midterm elections, will they be something that support the follow through on the pledges and what can be achieved? Because they, they are genuinely very constructive, but they may be impacted by politics again, just um, acting as a very strong headwind to implementing fully. I think when you look to other areas of the world, and again, and I'm sorry just to concentrate, you know, it seems largely on US and China, but for China, it does feel like you know, the embedding into their national policy is really quite significant now. You know, they have uh, what is deemed as the ecological civilization agenda within the national policy. And this is about this significant development of a green economy and not just move into how do they offset emissions, but actually how do they remove emissions? How do they really improve on their whole country as a place that can be run off of a greener uh, agenda and energy for the future? And I think that these things are really exciting. And for investors, I think they need to look at where the policy tailwinds are and to try and align to those around infrastructure, around some of the technology that we'll see, around some of the consumer activity that will pivot as well. But it will be challenging in the fact that this will not be a smooth and constant process. It will vary by country and by the degree to which we see those policy headwinds and tailwinds um, play out. Andrew McCaffrey there, and you can also find the full version of that interview on the Rich Pickings channel. Victoria, as Andrew sets out there, to what extent do you think geopolitical tensions are impacting climate change initiatives? I think it's a really good point, and I think it's something that both Andrew and uh, Mr. Barroso really did echo. It, it is a challenge, that these tensions across multiple nations and, you know, what they're going to focus on. But I also think, you know, we have to accept it's not going to be straightforward. And I think this has actually only accelerated in the last two years with the onset of the pandemic. The pressures that governments are facing are you know, astronomical. It's not just climate change. It's also how do you keep your people safe? How do you keep your people healthy? And how do you balance the short-term needs of, of the communities versus the long-term needs of our future generations? And so I think this is a really big challenge, not only what's happening between jurisdictions, but also what's happening within various countries and also their own individual economic challenges that they're facing on a day-to-day -day basis. So the objectives are clear, but the road clearly is going to be bumpy. Thank you, Victoria, for joining me. That's all we have time for this month. If you'd like to read more about any of the topics covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or to fidelityinternational.com. And you can listen to plenty more on both our Fidelity Answers and Rich Pickings podcast channels. We'll be back next year with plenty more insights and analysis. The producer of this podcast was Holly Eastman with technical support from Alex Wilcox. From all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website.